0: and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and explores how the institution, its staff, and its research benefits people and communities, both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer, and on this occasion, I am delighted to be joined by Professor Rohinton Emanuel, the Director of the BEAM Research Center here at GCU, to talk about the phenomenon of urban heat islands and how they are contributing to the climate emergency. Rohinton, it's great to see you. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I think this is a very timely moment to be discussing this topic, especially given the recent heat wave we've seen in Scotland and the rest of the UK. So let's start by focusing on the title of this podcast. What do we mean by the term urban heat island?
1: Urban heat island is the unintended consequence of urbanisation the warmth of a city in relation to its rural settings. So it looks as if it is a hot spot in a cool surroundings, hence the name island and heat because it is hot. So So how do they develop? They have three or four basic causes. The the principal cause is human-made changes to land use and land cover. We build uh, hard surfaces, cut down trees, uh, put up buildings, Uh, create a lot of pollution, drive a lot of vehicles. All of these, the lack of uh, greenery, the human-made surfaces in cities, uh, the pollution, air pollution, are the principal
0: causes of uh, them developing. So what are some of the consequences then of living in an urban heat island? How can it affect a person's physical and mental well-being? The urban heat island leads to warmer uh, temperatures,
1: drier humidity uh, we have also evidence that it has a lot of uh, uh, changes to the rainfall so these three things together will lead to increases in diseases associated with warm uh, climates mm-hmm. you know there are a group of diseases called copd they they are about the uh, respiratory systems of, okay. the, of, the, of the body. So anything that affects uh, that system, particularly uh, heat, uh, will be a problem. So that's the principal effect. Also, I think we have an effect of uh, air pollution combined with uh, heat. Uh, they together have asthma and uh, mm. diseases associated with uh, such, such things. So this could be the sort of uh, human effects. That's on the sort of health side. It's also about quality of life. Uh, yeah. Warmer temperatures and uh, too hot uh, weather lead to uh, thermal discomfort, which is not going to kill a person, but it, it leads to experience of the city that is not very
0: positive. Yeah, definitely. We saw that uh, a couple of weeks ago then when it was, I think it was 32 degrees in yeah. Glasgow. It was just, just crazy. That's right. So it, it is also something
1: that people get uh, acclimatised to uh, in the Middle East, people are used to 40 plus degrees and they've lived there for centuries. But in in Glasgow, 24 degrees for three consecutive days is considered Mm -hmm. heat island. Uh, And uh, a month ago, that exceeded. But uh, it's something that we will get used to. But until such time, it it also leads to a lot of changes, a lot of uh, negative consequences. So for us here, given that it is relatively... Uh, cold weather. This kind of extremes, uh, th- that's exactly what it is. This is extreme. Mm-hmm. So the extremes then causes uh, the unintended consequences.
0: I read that Glasgow experienced its hottest summer last year, it experienced its hottest summer since 1884. And with temperatures expected to rise by over 1.2 degrees Celsius by 2050, it sounds like a real concern and something that we have to address immediately. How are urban heat islands contributing to the ongoing climate emergency?
1: Unfortunately, the urban heat island itself is not part of the discussion on climate emergency. I think that came to the fore this year, mm-hmm. especially in the UK. But it has been in, in the fore in, in India, for example, in India and in Pakistan in May. They have some, some of the warmest ever temperatures. Since more and more people are now living in cities, we will experience climate change through urban heat island. And they together... Uh, lead to uh, the unintended consequences being amplified. Right? So this is, I think, the, the problem, that we need to put urban heat island as part of the climate uh, change uh, mitigation and adaptation debate. And The good thing about urban heat island mitigation is you can the changes that we make to urban heat island are local effect. Mm-hmm. You plant trees and we can talk about uh, what we need to do. Yeah. Uh, all of the things that we need to do lead to local effect immediately. So this is a a win-win. It's a low-hanging fruit. Uh, Sometimes in the climate emergency, the things that we need to do are about changing the lifestyle, changing the electricity pattern, generation patterns. They they are long-term, and the effects are sort of dissipated across the whole Mm -hmm. world. Whereas the urban heat island mitigation is... Here and
0: now, and it, it leads to immediate positives. Why isn't it part of the climate emergency discussion? It seems like, from what you're saying, quite an obvious thing that should be part of the discussion. I think in,
1: initially, when climate change was being discussed and being uh, defined, there was a worry that what is being recorded in the historic climate is not necessarily the climate change; it is the urban climate, because. Historically, in the last 150-200 years, most weather stations were urban weather stations. So what we are measuring is, is a combination of urban weather as well as the warming global weather. Right. So okay. that was that was a problem. Now we know for sure, for after several IPCC rounds, the global climate itself is warming. And urban warming is on top of that. So this, this is no longer a concern. So initially, I think that was the reason. The cities and their role... In the climate emergency, only begins to be recognised in the last two assessment reports of the IPCC. So it's 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 coming up
0: the form, okay. but not yet there. Yeah. Let's talk about Glasgow. Can you give us an example of an urban heat island in this city? If you look at the mapping processes, and you would see that in the city centre. Is where the warmest temperature is. Is that in most cases because that's the most urbanised and not just in Glasgow but around the world, the city centres tend to be the warmest. tend to tend to be the most built up and the most uh, changes to land cover, hmm.
1: uh, and the three dimensionality of the uh, of the city is hi- highest. Uh, although Glasgow is a was a shrinking <laughs> city and it has sort of stopped being shrinking, it's beginning to grow. The urban gr- urban pattern. The built area, the streets, they still remain. So the city centre is largely without any park. Actually, the, in, within the entire city centre, there mm-hmm. is, excluding the Glasgow Green, there are no other green surfaces within the city centre. There, there is probably one or two examples in mm-hmm. Buccleuch Park, and there's very few. Yeah. So that that also leads to uh, this kind of uh, effects. The contrary to pop, uh, popular imagination, I think urban heat island is a nighttime phenomenon. Uh, because cities and the rural areas get exactly the same amount of heat from the sun. But cities are very efficient in trapping them because mm-hmm. it has a lot of man-made surfaces and three-dimensional buildings and less trees and so forth. So you see the urban heat island at night when nobody is out and about. So that's that's why I think it has been noticed. It's when the weather itself
0: is very hot then the city makes it worse, then people notice it. Mm-hmm. There was a recent BBC report that you contributed to, it was mostly focusing down in, in London, but effectively it was how people that can stay in the same city, just effectively streets apart, can experience wildly different temperatures, sometimes about like five or six degrees between various streets. Could you talk a wee bit about that That's right.
1: We have done these kind of measurements uh, within Glasgow City, uh, if you take a thermometer and walk around the city center, just the city center, starting from, let's say, Glasgow Green to the city center, you would see five, six degrees differences. And uh, you would uh, you would also see not only in, the, in green areas, in very heavily shaded areas. Say, for example, there is a street in, uh, off the Buchanan Street uh, pedestrianized area, Mitchell Lane. It's a very mm-hmm. uh, high building, six, seven-story buildings. Maybe the uh, street is uh, three meters wide. It's very built up. Mm -hmm. That too is very cool during the daytime. So that there are some positive areas because it's unintended. That was not Mm -hmm. meant to be. It's a muse, it's a lane. And as a result, it's very narrow, but very tall. It has the same effect as uh, having a lot of trees. It's full of shade. Uh, So we have measured four, five degree differences within the cities, just within the city center. So that also shows us what is possible. You know, it's not a, urban heat island is not one thing. It is not one hot patch in a rural surrounding. It's a several little hot patches in
0: uh, and cool patches. So these cool areas could give us a ideas about how to control it. I'm going to come on and ask you how we control, but first I want to ask you about how we actually carrying out, measuring the temperatures around the city. You spoke there about walking around with a thermometer. I'm sure it's a bit more scientific right. than that. That's right. So the, the easiest way to measure
1: the urban heat island is to look at satellite-derived data. Satellites give us the s- surface temperature, and that is me- measured several times a year and sometimes many times in the same day. So that, that is really good the land surface temperature but unfortunately land surface temperature is not air temperature what the satellite sees is surfaces it's not measuring air temperature what we feel is air temperature so it's not the same so in order to measure the actual air temperature we need to put a lot of weather stations in the city which we have done for short periods 10-15 stations but obviously, it cannot be done on a long-term basis mm-hmm. because it takes it an take enormous amount of human and material resources. So in the absence of that, uh, the satellite-derived data is the proxy. Or we then can also, with some certain controls, can walk around the city with a thermometer because that is also a, n- a way to do it, but it cannot be done for the mm-hmm. entire city. We have done also vehicle-mounted, uh, measurements uh, in Glasgow uh, that that obviously helps us to cover a little bit wider area that could also be done So then
0: Rahinton, how can we prevent
1: urban heat islands from developing? I, I think before we look at mitigation we also have to look at risk uh, so IPCC defines risk as a, as a function of hazard Adaptive adaptive capacity, resilience, and vulnerability. Right? In the case of urban heat island, the hazard itself is temperature. Uh, but it doesn't affect everybody equally. It, it affects the most vulnerable who have some underlying health conditions, or the very young or the very old, much more disproportionately than the rest. And not every one of us have the same adaptive capacity. So some people can cool themselves, can buy a fan. Album, Uh, put air conditioners a lot of people lot of others cannot because we are still uh, a city a climate that is heating dominated we are approaching winter very soon and uh, and we are expecting a massive increase in prices of gas and electricity so this is that is still our problem so we need to do urban heat island mitigation while also taking care of the heating need that's our Mm -hmm. principal need right it's true people die of uh, heat heat island effect but far more people die of during the winter time, mm-hmm. you know, lack of heating. That is still our, our problem. But unfortunately, this weather, this climate that we now have, Glasgow's prediction for 2050 is current London climate. So London already has a massive, regular, yeah. every year, heat island problem. So we, we need to prepare because the city takes a long time to change. So it's time to do it now. What do we need to do? We need to do only three or four things. This is the good thing about Heat Island, I think. One is to encourage green green infrastructure, by which I mean green stuff, trees, roof gardens, uh, um, mews, and stuff like this. So this is the number one. Uh, Number two, I think, is to also encourage uh, shading uh, by arranging buildings uh, more intelligently. They, They need to, of course, we cannot shade too much of the public space uh, during wintertime, we would need sun, mm-hmm. but uh, it, but it can be done by you know by learning from examples from Mediterranean uh, cities which already have this issue already. And thirdly, I think also we need to reduce the amount of air pollution we create because air pollution acts like a mini greenhouse within the city, sort of exacerbating uh, urban heat island problem. And if you look at Glasgow, our principal air pollution, a cause of air pollution is traffic. So controlling traffic has, it has so many other uh, co-benefits of uh, air, air pollution, health related, but, but it also contributes to urban heat island mitigation. So greenery, uh, controlling pollution and enhancing ventilation and shading,
0: it would be the key mitigation. Now, Rahinton, prior to recording this podcast, you very kindly sent over some literature and it was titled Climate Proof in Glasgow, Adaption Strategies for Urban Overheating. And one of the suggestions in this was the avenues program. Can you talk a wee bit about that?
1: Glasgow City is in the uh, process of converting several of the city centre streets into what they call avenues. Uh, Essentially, these are traffic reducing measures. So you get rid of one lane of traffic and convert it into the public realm trees and benches and stuff like this.
0: See, an example of that, would that be done in Sockie Hall Street? Exactly.
1: That's the first, that was the first example right. that was okay. that started. And then the idea was to do many streets. Unfortunately, the pandemic came in and the programme got delayed. Now I see they have just started, restarted doing it. There, there will be one near our campus. The North Hanover Street also will become eventually a, an avenues. And so the idea of, largely it says traffic reduction and air pollution reduction but we were looking at whether it will also have a urban heat island mitigation uh, possibility and it does it's a good thing so there are lots of co-benefits here Uh, while increasing the green cover reducing the traffic it also helps in the climate adaptation program so we did some work in looking at what effect it will have it essentially will cancel the urban heat island effect in the city center once all the eight or plus uh, streets are done up uh, and it's not just trees it's also controlling the building heights etc so and the material so we also looked at what else they could do so by changing the species of the trees that they would use and the materiality of the streets it can be even even better so it's, it's, a, it's a positive, it's not uh, meant to be a climate change adaptation, urban heat island adaption option, but it could ha- it could have these uh, positive unintended consequences. So.
0: What about the new buildings, Rahenton, like houses, for instance? I know that something we touched on earlier, that houses within the UK are, are built to retain heat. Do we need to think about the way that houses are built going forward, perhaps like using different materials, different architecture at all? Is that something we need to consider? That, that's right. It's, uh, during the last uh, heat wave, this was very clear. There are some
1: buildings that just simply overheat, uh, especially the modern ones. They are designed, obviously, to retain heat. Uh, one of the key ways that re- we retain heat in modern buildings is super air tightness. It's highly airtight. These buildings are designed to uh, trap the heat inside. Obviously, that will have overheating consequences. So we need to think of the building regulations carefully. Uh, This is a bit of a problem because uh, there is a transition coming from a heating-dominated climate to heating and cooling dominated, eventually maybe cooling dominated. So while we are doing this transition, we have to design buildings that can do both, that they can be easily heated as well as cooled, which means we'll have to design buildings to open the windows, the possibility to do cross ventilation. This is not done in modern buildings, we have single aspect uh, rooms, which is very common. That means every building, every room has only one outside um, facing wall. So it's not possible to cross-ventilate this kind of buildings. So unless you open all both sides of it and then privacy and all of that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. So we'll have to rethink the building regulations, which is, uh, as I said, is principally meant for heat retention. Uh, But I think... uh, New buildings is a tiny portion of UK house, uh, housing stock. If you look at the housing alone, just excluding uh, non domestic building, just domestic building, we 75% of the buildings that will stand in 2050, that's our climate change adaptation uh, and mitigation target year, 75% of them are already built. So only 25% will be built between now and 2050. So new buildings, yes, they are a problem and they need, we need to worry about it. But the bigger problem is existing buildings. Mm-hmm. So that is even greater challenge. We are already having a challenge of uh, heating them. Yeah. So we need to now think of how to, while facilitating heating, we need to also facilitate mm-hmm. cooling. So that is a greater challenge.
0: Is there any progress with meeting that challenge at all? Uh, I mean, we are making progress
1: in terms of heating targets. There's a very... Uh, stringent targets for uh, increasing their heating efficiency, but there are unintended consequences. The more we do that, and you know we uh, put a lot of effort in insulating them and so forth, uh, there will be uh, penalties for insulating them highly, uh, which could lead to uh, difficulties of overheating. Right? So, but it's, it this is a challenge. We also live in a very high rainfall em- uh, environment, and that will go up although the seasonality will change. So that is difficult. When you have this high rainfall event with a very tight building, you're going to have moldy and uh, those kinds of problems.
0: So this needs to be also uh, tackled. What can individuals do to mitigate urban heat islands? What can we do on a day-to-day basis to try and reduce the temperatures of Glasgow? Individually, I think cooling-related strategies cannot be done individually. They
1: have to be done communally. This is the lesson we learn from uh, warm cities, hot cities. I think it is perhaps the single biggest thing we can do is to learn from, say, Mediterranean cities. they have already living with uh, a, mm-hmm. a, a modest heating load in, in winter, but a very large cooling load. So how do they do? They, it is about uh, the way we dress, the way we build our buildings, the way we use public spaces. We don't use a lot of public spaces. Understandably so. Most of the time, it cannot be used. So we need to then increase the usability of public spaces. This we saw during the pandemic. That's the first thing to open, and the buildings are the last things to be open. So we need to also sort of encourage more outdoor living, which at the moment inc- uh, requires us to be you know heat proof as well. So that is that is necessary. But I think more and more outdoor based uh, and shading. Uh, provided, ventilation and that kind of stuff, as well as uh, what we can do in terms
0: of activities and clothing. We'll also have to back uh, to change. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your own academic career, Rahinton. I had a look at your profile on the GCU website and you've taught all over the world. You've taught in Sri Lanka, the United States, Sweden and the UK. Tell me about your journey in academia.
1: Okay, I, I'm an architect by profession. I started off uh, learning my professional architecture uh, qualifications in Sri Lanka, and then I did my higher studies in uh, US. U.S. Uh, uh, I was already in, uh, interested in why modern buildings are so uncomfortable, and uh, when I was learning my undergraduate uh, architecture, the professors keep saying how wonderful the building, traditional buildings and vernacular is, that was not my experience, I was, <laughs> I was looking at them as uh, really uncomfortable, so why so? and then i fairly quickly realized climate proofing it requires not just buildings also the surroundings you need to do that as, as well so i did my masters uh, and uh, phd in uh, warm climates and how do we man- manage uh, this uh, phenomenon of local changes i discovered urban heat island at this in this process so it's about 30 years ago and i started to look at studying urban heat island so that was my phd on and then i went back and taught in sri lanka and i was also involved in some teaching in sweden where architecture energy and environment were beginning to bubble up and i began to see that it is necessary to tackle climate and climate change at the local level so this is part of the sort of think globally act locally kind of effort and I think this is how I think urban heat island became my my interest and I'm now very glad that uh, even in Glasgow people are talking about (laughs) urban heat island and mitigating it and and living with it how long have you been working at university for I've been here for 14 years 14 years 14 plus now enjoy it Absolutely. Also <laughs> the, uh, the city, I think. I think it is it's a wonderful place. And there yeah. is also the, the fact that this is, these issues are taken very seriously makes it even more enjoyable.
0: Yeah. Tell me, Rahantan a wee bit about the wider work of the BEAM Centre at GCU. BEAM
1: Centre is Built Environment Asset Management uh, Centre. So our focus is on uh, in enhancing the sustainability of the built asset, especially uh, existing asset. We do three areas of work. One is the sort of construction related work in terms of actual construction management, how things actually get built. Uh, We also look at the environmental quality of the buildings and their surroundings. And thirdly, the sustainable cities. So I lead the groups within the sustainable city and there are other researchers in the other two areas, but I'm also the overall director. So our principal work is uh, uh, capacity building in uh, in uh, in the industry to tackle the existing built environment, but also research in uh, uh, primary research in these three areas: so water quality, uh, climate-related work, and building performance as well as uh, construction uh, management. It just sounds like making the cities better for people to live in. That's exactly, I think the built environment angle there is. That's the angle that has been uh, missing, I think. Also, in climate change uh, adaptation, mitigation debates, we talked a lot about renewable energy, uh, about transport. Buildings are a big part of the of the de- debate. Should be a big part of the debate. It's not. So this is, I think, beginning to change. And I think to begin to include the cities, sustainable cities, as part of it is is a is a wonderful thing. GCU itself, I think one of the things that we do very well is to link all of this to the sustainable development goals. Of course, of course. The SDGs are, I and mean, they are now principally, at least SDG 11 is all about sustainable cities and there is climate action also. So Beam you know, tries
0: to be, do both, so I think, climate action as well as SDG 11. Ranton, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. I've learned a lot and I hope our listeners have. as well. Thank, Thank you very much for having me. I'd also like to thank everyone for tuning into today's episode and I hope you'll be back with us next time when we'll be talking with another member of the GCU community about their research and their career. The views expressed in the Common Good podcast are those of the researcher and don't necessarily represent the views of Glasgow Caledonian University please subscribe to this podcast. You can get every single episode sent straight to your listening device by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and almost everywhere else. There are over 100 episodes in the archives, so there's plenty to get your ears around. So, until next time, I've been Craig Telfer, and this has been The Common Good Podcast.